Right, our job this morning then is to look at what makes up the universe. The uh, present view of science is this, that the only things you can measure and take seriously in science are those governed by natural law. Now, could you tell me what natural law is? Where's well, the law of the laws which govern matter? Now, what are the laws that govern matter? Come on, you've all done your chemistry, haven't you? You know your chemistry well and better than I do. Is that right? Well, valency, density, melting point, all those sorts of things. Natural law, gravitation, um, all that sort of thing. Now, if you listen to what the newspapers and the media say, you'll find this, that they say life consists of chemistry writ large. Do you know who said that? You don't? Well, it's Francis Crick. He lives just down here. Um, he got a Nobel Prize because he, with Watson, worked out the structure of the DNA molecule. And he said, life is chemistry writ large. Now, there's one thing that's certain, is that life runs on chemistry, but chemistry didn't make it. You got it? got the difference. We are, I mean, chemistry, aren't we? I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, you have to eat potatoes to keep alive, don't you? Or beefsteak, whatever it is you have. And that's all worked up chemically in the digestive system by methods you know all about. And um, they're saying, you see, that chemistry describes life completely. Well, now, Chemistry certainly is the basis on which life runs. How do your nerves function? How does your brain work? How, do the current, how are the currents kept up in the brain, the electrical currents? You know? Well, it's chemical. The potassium ion diffused through the nerve sheets and caused uh, a polarization to take place between the inside of the nerve and the outside of the nerve. And that gives you a current. And you see, the electrical current of uh, the nervous system, how, how fast does it travel? If you pass an electrical current from your eye, say, um, into your brain, how fast does it travel, do you know? If it traveled like it does in a copper wire, how fast would it travel? I've seen biologists even state that the nervous system can work better than any computer because the speed of the electrical current in the brain is the speed of light. I mean, there's an absolute and total error. It isn't the case. It's defined the speed of an electrical impulse in the brain is defined by the rate of diffusion of potassium ions through uh, a nerve sheath, which certainly isn't the speed of light. If you uh, take some of the lower crustaceans, you know what crustaceans are, don't you? Some of them have very big nerves, and uh, you can touch them and uh, wait till the nerve is taking the impulse back to the brain. The brain has processed it, and then uh, the animal will kick, you see. If you do it with an elephant, you can get away quite easily. If you prick the bottom of his toe uh, with something very sharp, it takes quite a time, because it's such a long, long way to go from the back foot, you see up to the spinal column, up to the brain, 
and then give the notice that you're going to kick. And you can be 10 yards away, but the plan doesn't kick because it takes quite a long time to do. So it takes time because it is chemistry. But you see, you could say that houses are built with bricks, couldn't you? You could say that. We build houses with bricks or slabs of concrete or whatever you like. But could you say that bricks build houses? Well, that's just the, the error which, which we've got to in biology. Biology runs on chemistry, but chemistry doesn't make biology. Bricks make houses. Uh, bricks are unnecessary to make houses, but bricks don't build houses, do they? If you've got a, a pile of bricks, that doesn't mean to say that in 10 years you're going to have a house. Uh, you've got to have somebody to use the bricks and put them into places. And it's the using of the bricks to put them into, into place which brings in the third column of the universe. So we've got the first column of the universe is energy. Okay? And the second column of the universe is matter. And the two are equivalent according to Einstein. Remember the, the MC squared theory, don't you? Uh, from Einstein. You do all know that, don't you? I don't need to go into that. These two are equivalent forms of the same thing, energy and matter. But the third one is information. And the information is the most difficult part of the whole business to understand. Because the whole computer industry is built on it, and nobody knows how to define it. That's the difficulty. I've just been talking to your teacher about the difficulty of making this clear to people, uh, to anybody, even computer experts look at you blank when you talk to them about it because they've no idea what you're dealing with. And that's what I'm going to do this morning. It's hard to do, but if you all send a little oxyhemoglobin up to the top story, uh, we'll, uh, we'll get on famously. Now, chemistry is the basis on which life runs. But chemistry doesn't make life. Because if it did, you ought to be able to put the contents of life into a test tube and wait and see that it would build life, wouldn't you? You can't do that. You see, you need to have the influence of direction, uh, information to put the bits into the right place. If you're going to build a house, you must have the material. That's the matter. And then you must have the energy. It is the energy to do it. But the third thing is this, you need the direction in the energy. And that's the third column of the universe, information. Now, information is called a surprise effect. Now, why is it called a surprise effect? Because you can't calculate it beforehand. You see, if you're going to build a house and you've got a pile of bricks there, you've got to have somebody come along who has a bit of direction in his head and knows how to build a house and put those bricks directionally in their place. He knows just where each one belongs and will order it with the energy which he has with his directive. And that's the nature of information. It's the direction in which you use your energy. Now, when I spoke Tuesday, well, you weren't here, there were a lot of people here on Tuesday. And when I spoke about um, chemistry, uh, I said that certain reactions need direction in it so that you could get them formed in the right size, didn't I, the right shape. And I took an umbrella as an example and showed that if you take an umbrella, uh, you know, you're walking along underneath it, and then a gust of wind comes, it turns the umbrella inside out. You've had that happen, don't you? And uh, 
if you turn the umbrella around the other way so the gust of wind comes from the other side, provided your umbrella isn't already bust, you can turn it back again, can't you? Now, information's like that. Information will give you the direction to the matter to make the right shape. The information required to build a house, you need somebody to direct the energy to put each brick in its right place, and then you'll be okay. If you don't, you never get a house. You may get a heap of bricks, but nothing else. Okay? So that's the third column of the universe, the direction which you take uh, your energy into. The way the energy is used, uh, it's like the combustion engine I showed on Tuesday here. Uh, normally an explosion won't get you anywhere, will it? Uh, maybe shoot you up into the air, but I mean you can't use it as a method of transport. But if you explode your gasoline in a motor, it'll convert the general energy in all directions into one direction, the piston goes down, and turns the crankshaft, and the crankshaft turns the rear wheels, or the wheels, the forward wheels, if you like, and you can get somewhere. So you're converting directionless mass to direction, okay? Quite easy to have matter which is directionless, and it's quite necessary to have matter which has direction in it if you're going to build anything. Now, it's the same with our life, isn't it? Our life is exactly the same. Unless we have deep within us some sense of direction of where we're going, we just wander around like people being blown to bits by an explosion. Uh, we don't get anywhere. Is that okay? Now, these bits of information, you need one bit uh, of information, which is one surprise effect, one bit of direction to put a molecule there or to put a molecule there. One bit. Or if you have eight bits, it's one byte, and they're all surprise effects. Now, I want to make that absolutely clear. It's hard, I know that, but you've got to understand this because this is the subject which is going to revolutionize science and will certainly knock Darwinism sky high because Darwin works without direction. Darwin says there's no outside direction to matter to produce life. Now, we've never seen matter produce uh, to produce life alone, have we, left alone. But if you go into the lab and do as Carl Spiegelman did and Arthur Kornberg did, you can make a DNA molecule or an RNA molecule which replicates. So you've got to have the, the chemist there who knows his job and he'll put the molecules together in the right order, the right direction. And when they're all put in the right direction, the machine will work and you get a, a virus that lives there. But you need the Spiegelman effect or the Kornberg effect to give the direction to put, um, to put the molecules into so that the system begins to work. Now, is that okay? Let's just have a look at this and uh, see where we're getting to. Those are the three columns, then, of the universe, and these two are equivalent to one another according to Einstein. Now, let's just have a look. I want you to send a little extra dose of oxyhemoglobin up top for this one because it's rather hard. Do you know what distress means? Fun? I need help. Okay, that's right. All right, I take that. Good. Give you an A for that. Fine. Now, anybody else tell me what distress means? What does it mean physiologically? Come on, I pointed to it. 
pointed to it here. What does it mean physiologically if you get into trouble and you're in stress or distress? Well, you'll put adrenaline into your blood, won't you? You call it epinephrine, in case uh, I said it wrong. It used to be called epinephrine anyway here. Do you call it epinephrine still? It is both. Well, the European way is calling it uh, adrenaline, and your way of calling it was, when I was here 20 years ago, at least epinephrine. But when you get into a stress, you release the stress hormone into the blood, and the heart goes faster, your blood pressure rises, and you're on the alert. You're ready for, theoretically, anything. Now, I want to be able to commit this thought to you. You won't understand at the moment why I'm doing this, but you will in just two minutes. Um, I want to commit this thought for transmission to you that I'm in distress. I'm not in distress, really, but I'm just using this as an example, you say. Now, how could I do that, distress? Because it's rather a complicated term, isn't it? You can have distress from toothache, you can have distress from pain in the neck, you can have a sore back, anything you can have. I want to invent a term to express distress. How do I do it? Well, I invent a term. I say, let SOS mean distress. Okay? If you send out on board ship, say your ship taking in water faster than you can pump it out. Uh, and you know that in one hour you'll be under the waves instead of on top of them. You send out on the radio an SOS message, don't you? Now, uh, that's very nice. But does SOS look like the sinking ship? Come on. No, it doesn't, does it? There's no resemblance at all. The only way that we've made SOS equal distress is by saying let SOS equal distress. Did it mean that? So what I've done is I've made you an axiom. Now you all know what an axiom is, don't you? It's something that we take and take as given. So there's no law in nature which says, you ready for that? There's no law in nature which says SOS equals distress. There's nothing. It's something that I've invented. It's a concept that I've invented to say, look, I want a general term to say that I'm going to use when I'm in trouble, okay? Now look, if you want to send SOS through the radio, there's um, a way they found out very quickly how to do it. Listen carefully, there's two steps here. I'll do the two together so you'll be all right. They said, look, S-O-S, there's 26 letters in the alphabet, and that's not very convenient to use on the radio, especially when you're in trouble. So we'll do it like this. Pay attention to what I say. We'll say let S equal three dots. Okay? Like this, you say. Let S equal three dots. Now, there's no natural law to govern that. That's something I've invented. That's my idea, and it's my axiom. But there's no natural law to, to cover that at all. And then I say, let O equal three dashes. There's no law behind that. I've just said, let it do it, because I want it. I want the language. And I'm making a code. Are you okay? This is very important. So you make two language conventions here. Language, convention. The first language convention is that SOS 
equals distress. Okay? That's a convention. Now, what does a convention imply? It implies that I have a convention. I say, let that equal that. So it's a convention. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you think about this, because this will take you through life if you get it straight. Uh, a convention. Now, what does a convention imply? What's hidden in the word convention? Con? You've all done Latin, haven't you? You're all experts in Latin and Greek and Hebrew, aren't you? Don't look at me like that. It looks awful. Yeah. Well, a convention implies this is important. That's why I don't say it quickly, because if I do, it'll roll off your back like water off a duck's back, and that's not what I'm at. I'm at to, I want to penetrate the feathers, you see, to, to get you weighted down with a bit of information. A convention, con, means coming together. Invention is from veneer, the French word, to come together. So that means that two intelligences have come together to agree that this is equal to that. So if I say, let S equal distress, it means that I'm talking to somebody. And say, look, we are going to use SOS as a sign of distress. So it implies wherever you've got a language convention that there's intelligence to use it, to make it, and to use it. Okay? You can't have a language, you know, or a code without any intelligence. It is impossible. You can't manage that. So if you've got a convention, it means that there was an intelligence that said, let that equal that. Because there's no law behind it. It's only invented. Now, if that's the case, we say, good, I'm in trouble. I'll send out dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, dot, dot. And everybody know I've got toothaches, you see? Okay? No difficulty at all. Now, you could uh, put that system on the, a string like that. Here's a string, shoelace, whatever you like. And I hold it up in front of you, and you can read it. Is there any other way that I can find out that that means SOS? How could I do it besides with my eyes? Well, I feel it, couldn't I? Feel it with my finger. Dot, 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 dash, dash. Dash, dot, 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 and I've got it. So I can use two channels of perception to get that message out, either by sight or by feeling. Now, that's very important because the genetic code works this way. If I use the dot and dash system, I could write up the whole Bible here, couldn't I? Write up the whole Bible. It'd have to be a long, 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 long string, wouldn't it? But you could do it. And you could sit there in pitch black room and feel it off with your fingertips. Marvelous. You could read all the thrillers, you know, that you read uh, that way. And the teacher wouldn't be able to see you while you're doing it on your lap, you see. Just read it with your fingers. Yeah. We had systems like that when I was at boarding school in England. That uh, You just had little strings of information. You passed them around and you never got the idea of the teacher what you were doing. Because you were reading a code, you see. But we'd made out our code beforehand, which implies two intelligences saying, let this equal that. Okay? Now, the genetic system, which controls the information to make your body while you're sitting here this morning, the genetic system works on that system. It has four letters. Here they are. 
one, two, three, four. This one is the difference between RNA and DNA, but you, you can disregard that for the present. Um, it has two chains, strings, of DOR, desoxyribose, and phosphate, phosphate, deoxyribose, phosphate, deoxyribose, phosphate, deoxyribose. And onto the deoxyribose, you all know what ribose is, don't you? You do know that. You all know the formula, don't you? You can trot it out to me. Well, don't bother if you can't. It's a five-ring sugar. This is one of these sweet sugars, that's all. And the phosphate is connected up to the five-ring sugar, phosphate, five-ring sugar, phosphate, five-ring sugar, until you get a string in the ordinary human cell, which is sometimes over a yard long. A yard. Now, you think how big a cell is. About as big as a pin tip, isn't it? Okay? And you think of rolling up a yard of string in that little cell uh, that it doesn't get tangled up. You think of the, the horror of having all your genetics liable to be tangled up because they're so long. Uh, you come out with squiffy faces then, you see, or squiffy legs or whatever you like because the information will be tied up. And the four letters here are called adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine, and they're simple nitrogenous organic substances. And they work like the dots and the dashes, but instead of dots and dashes, there are four of them instead of two, with intervals between them. Here you've got the intervals. So that you know when a word stops and when a word uh, is going on. Now let's have a look at this. If one uh, finds the ribosomes, you know what a ribosome is, don't you? I expect you'll be doing that sometime. The ribosomes are little speaking heads. You know what a speaking head is on, a, on a, an audio tape, don't you? The tape is pulled over the head and the head reads off what's on the tape, the magnetic charges on the, on the tape, doesn't it? It's a speaking head, really. And it develops and climbs onto here. And when it climbs onto there, it reads. Shall we say the first one it found was G, guanine, C, cytosine, C, cytosine. So guanine, cytosine, cytosine. When it reads that, uh, it feels it, you see, like your fingers feel it, or a speaking head on a, on a computer feels it on the tape magnetically. When it does that, it knows that the next substance to be put into the chain which is going to be built is uh, alanine. So this is really a method of doing an organic synthesis. You all do organic synthesis in course of time, don't you? I don't suppose you've done any now. Who's made any ascorbic acid? Nobody yet. Rather hard synthesis to do, so we'll leave that one. Um, the next one, if it goes along here, we've got fast here, you see. See now, it reads G A C for the next one. G A adenine C cytosine. G A C. Okay? It reads that and then telephones down to the rest of the system. Aha, the next one to go in 
in the synthesis is H-phosphate acid. Okay? Now, if he goes on further, up the, the road, up the road, and reads G, guanine, G, guanine, C, cytosine, it knows that the next acid to go in is glycine. Now, have you seen what I've done? He's got the absolute proof in biology because you've got a language and a convention. The language is known as a genetic code, and you've got a convention which says, let GCC equals alanine. This has been found out, this is the experiment, that's what Crick did in, in Cambridge years ago. You uh, found that GCC equals alanine, which is a convention, because GCC isn't alanine. But when you find GCC in that sequence, then it does mean alanine just as much as SOS means distress. Now, if you've got a code there, and something means that, but there's no law behind it, it's an axiom, and this is axiomatic, it isn't a law, then you know that intelligences have said, let this mean that, because that's the convention we're going to work on. The basis on which life works depends upon language and convention, which proves that you've got external intelligence towards it. You ask any language expert, as long as you don't mention biology, because if you get biology mentioned, you go off. But if you mention it for every, everything else in, in the lab that you find, if you've got a language convention in the code, you say, oh, well, that just reeks of intelligence. And that can't argue about it. Because GCC isn't alanine, but it means it. SOS isn't distress, but it means it, because we've decided it is an axiom. And the thing that Crick and Watson did, they found out what the axioms were. The axioms were. They found out that GCC does mean aniline, just as you might find out that SOS does mean distress, because you have to do a lot of experiments to find out, which they did. Now, that's the meaning of information. It's a surprise effect dependent upon an axiom. Okay? You couldn't argue it out from any laws that you know that SOS means distress. You can only look at it, how it's used, and then crack or break the code. Okay? Now, the code has been broken. It's been cracked. And we know what it means, and therefore that somebody at some time said, let that equal that, just the same as let SOS mean distress. Now, that's an absolutely important uh, piece of knowledge to which you must come because the world of tomorrow is going to be a world of information and computers. And this is how computers and things like that are programmed. And if you understand this principle, you will understand where intelligence is necessary. And therefore, it's a retrograde step in science if you say that the genetic code could arise by chance. Now, two or three years ago, I was asked to go to Helsinki in Finland. You all know where that is, don't you? Up there by Leningrad. And uh, the Finns have been ruled over by the Marxists for a long time. And uh, they're very intelligent people. And uh, they're seeking for means of getting out of the Marxist hegemony. 
they were then. Of course, they got out of it now because the whole East has collapsed. How long that'll last, I don't know. But that was the position. So they asked me if I'd go up and give them some lectures to the whole University of Helsinki on the implications of the genetic code in evolutionary theory. Just what the doctor wanted, you see. So uh, I went up and did it. And uh, the rector was a Marxist. He was a coward. And uh, he was doing a course on evolution at the same time as I was doing my course, you see. So he gave me a little tiny room, about as big as this room, and uh, said that would do. And I said, what do we do if we can't get them all in here? So he said, oh, well, I'll be around. If you want any help, I'll give it to you. So we waited till half an hour before the uh, lecture, and uh, I should think a thousand people turned up to get into that little room. So I said, look, we can't get in rector like this. Uh, give us the other room. Well, we had a, what they call an auditorium maximum. That is the maximum size room, which is the university uh, hall where they have all the big meetings. So we crowded into there, and I told them these things that I've told you this morning. Well, they were dead quiet. Now, the Finns don't like the Swedes. The Swedes ruled over them, you see, for years, and therefore the Swedish language is very unpopular with the Finns. The Finns must speak their own language, and 90% are Finns. But everybody who has an official position, say a teacher in a university or, or school, must be able to speak Swedish and Finnish with equal facility. So they're Finnish-speaking and uh, Swedish-speaking, all mixed up together. So they stood up and I finished my little lecture um, and uh, he said, uh, one of the boys stood up and said, look, you mean to say that, listen carefully this, this shows a good deal of intelligence, do you mean to say that GCC, GCC couldn't form by chance? Do you mean to say that it's impossible to have that form by chance? Is that your argument? So I said, no. But he said, couldn't it be formed by chance? So I said, sure. That the only thing is, it wouldn't have any meaning. Now, he said, I don't understand that one. Why wouldn't it have any meaning? GCC, by axiom, has that meaning. Well, I said, I don't know. Where will the meaning come from anywhere? So he was uneasy, you know, and all these boys, they were looking for some reason to be Marxist, because if you're a Marxist there, you see, you get on, uh, you get promoted, and you, your examinations are marked better, and all that sort of thing. So um, I said, well, let's do an experiment. Now, I want you to pay attention here, because it's quite an important experiment. Let's do a little experiment and show that chance couldn't do it. So they're very interested to see why chance couldn't build GCC, you see. So I said, well, I have a little bowl on the table, and I'll put into it a thousand cards. And each card has A on it. And I put in a thousand cards with B on it, and a thousand cards with C, right through to a thousand with Z, you see. Okay? Now I said, I mix them all up, and then I blindfold myself, or you blindfold me, and I put my hand in, and I pull out J. Okay? That's all right, isn't it? That's chance you can pull out if you've got all these cards in there 
all mixed up together, higgledy-piggledy, uh, I could pull out J. So I said, well, let's do it again, because that's what you're asking to do, to put these letters in by chance. So I put my hand in again, and this time I pull out J-A. A. Now, uh, I said, what does that mean? You could have pulled out GCC, but I wanted to make something clear, so I pulled out JA. Now, what does JA mean? So I said to them, ladies and gentlemen, what does JA mean? Well, dead silence, because you see, that was a real hot point, because the Finns speak Finnish, and JA in Finnish means and. Have I put it up here somewhere? I should have done. JA means and in Finnish in Finnish, okay? So, J-A in Swedish, you see, the Finns are always like that with the, the Swedes. I said, and J-A means in, Finni in Swedish, it means, um, yes, affirmation. It's like yours, you almost say, yeah, don't you, instead of yes. Uh, that's what it means in all the Germanic languages. So I said, well, look here, I think that that J-A means yes. Just as G-C-C uh, may mean anonym, so I think J-A means yes. Well, they were up in arms immediately. They were standing on their chairs and saying, no, J-A means and, plus. Because in Finnish it doesn't mean that. Well, I said, you said so. Well, of course, the... Swedes shouted that J-A meant affirmation, yes, because in their language it doesn't mean that. But the Finns shouted, and there were ten times more Finns than there were Swedes. Of course, the Swedes had very loud voices, so they prevailed quite a bit. Uh, so there was this awful chaos, and I let, them, I let them go at one another, you see. A little bit of dialectical materialism is sometimes good in, in dialectical materialistic circles. So when they shouted themselves still, couldn't shout anymore, I said, what does J-A mean then? So the Finns shouted that it meant and, hadn't I heard that? And the Swedes shouted it means yes, hadn't I heard that? I said, I'm not so sure, you know. So they said, well, why aren't you sure? We are. So it could be made by chance, the genetic code. And all your ideas that genetic code shows an intelligent person who made the, uh, made the, the genes is, is bunkum. They're, they're very aggressive. So I said, well, let's do another experiment. The experiment is always the answer to any real scientist. We'll do another experiment. We'll go to London and do the same experiment again in the Albert Hall. So they were up for that. They didn't mind that. So I went to the Albert Hall, you see, in spirit, and put in my hand to the bag and pulled out the JA. And I said, now to the, the Londoners sitting in front of me, 5,000, I said, what does JA mean? Well, you know, in England, there is no other language except British English. You know that, don't you? you the, the British think that. Uh, I used to, until I learned better. Now, having to learn them, soon corrects that little mistake. So I asked the Londoners what they thought the J.A. meant. Well, one of them stood up and said this. Now, listen. He stood up and said this. J.A. is a nonsense syllable. It doesn't mean anything. Was he right? Or was he wrong? Was he right or was he wrong? Well, for London, he was right.
because you see they don't speak Swedish or Finnish there and they don't have J-A, J-A jar wouldn't mean anything, would it, in English at all? So I said, now what does it mean? Is it a nonsense syllable? Or is it a meaningful syllable? So then they came to the conclusion, I want you to listen to this, that the meaning of any sequence that is made by chance is put on to the sequence after you've got it. That is, there's nothing, there's no inherent meaning in it, that is, that it's an axiom which is applied and imposed upon the sequence arbitrarily by the person who wants to build the code, okay? So, if you did get GCC made by chance, it would only mean alanine if somebody came along and said GCC means alanine. But in itself, it doesn't mean anything at all. It means what you care to put on it, because it's an axiom. Now, you have to understand this language theory, you know? Otherwise, you're going to get into trouble later on. Uh, when they start arguing about evolution, you'll really be in trouble. But nobody ever goes into these fundamental matters to teach you. That's the problem here. They don't go into language theory to decipher and to explain the meaning of a genetic code. The genetic code here, if it were made by chance, and you can make the DNA molecule by chance, and it'll have all these letters on it by chance, the only thing is, it doesn't have any meaning. Absolutely nothing. And you put it into a system, you get nothing out because it has no meaning on it. It only gets meaning if you put the meaning, the interpretation of the meaning, on the ribosomes. And the ribosomes are made by the DNA molecule, so you've got a closed circuit there. You've got a circular reasoning there. And if you don't get your ribosomes correctly programmed by the DNA molecule themselves and the RNA molecule, then they can't read anything at all. Even if there were meaning on it, they can't get it out. So you've got to have the idea of the axiom, the language convention, to decide what the information on the genetic code means. And there's no way around that. You've got intelligence, logos, making a language so that the language can be interpreted. This is better than any arguments about fossils, you know, and things like that because this is absolutely clinching evidence. You can't have a language without intelligent people to speak it. Now, are there any questions you might like to ask about that? Have you understood me? Did I really get the message across? You can't have any language without a language convention, and the convention means that two intelligences come together and say this shall mean that, which is fiat. And that is, of course, the basis of creationism, that God, in his fiat power, said, let there be light, let there be animals, let there be plants, and put the meaning of them into them on the basis of uh, a language convention. Now, is there anything more you like to, would you like to ask about that? One bit of information uh, such as I put up here, bits and bytes of information, one bit is one bit of direction to make a thing go one way or another. Now, you know what a, an all-or-nothing reaction is, don't you? An all-or-nothing reaction, commonly used in biology. Either you get an effect or you get no effect and there's no gradation between the two. Okay? Now, if you were to get, say, 
I wonder if I can do it. I'll try and do it. If you get, say, a molecule being built for the building blocks of life, okay? Say it looks like that. Or you get another molecule built, exactly the same molecule, but spherically different, like that. This one looks like the umbrella, doesn't it? And this one looks like the umbrella that's been blown inside out. Now, this one is the left-hand molecule, what we say? And this one is the right-hand molecule, the dextro molecule. I just want to explain what one bit of information is, so that you've got that in your mind. If you get the wind coming under here, uh, while you're walking in the rain, and there comes a time when the wind is, wind is just strong enough to turn the thing inside out, so it's that way, so that the left hand becomes a right-handed molecule, that would be one bit of information. It's just enough to have an all-or-nothing effect, okay? Now, you need these all-or-nothing effects to make bits and bytes, and eight bits makes one byte of information, and they're all yes or no, like digital what watches and things like that work on, and computers work on. Okay? That's how it works. Now, if you calculate the number of bits of information in here to make all this possible, that GCC means alanine, GAC means aspartic acid, GCC, uh, GGC means glycine, if you calculate them out all together, it takes 13 years working in a fully equipped lab, which the Americans are now going to do, to work out all the sequences which are in the genetic code to give you the information. Thirteen years, a whole lab taking about three million dollars a year to do, just to work out how many bits of information are in there, how many bits of convention are in there. Think of that. And it's almost infinite. Now, that means that the intelligence behind us who made this system is just simply so full of information that we can scarcely digest it with the best computers that we have. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I think that'll do for the third column of the universe. And the third column of the universe is undoubtedly information. And we've just found how to reduce the information to bits and bytes and to make the machines which are capable of adding them up and using them, like we weigh and measure things. Now we can weigh and measure information, which when I studied at the university, we couldn't do, because nobody knew anything about these things. Think of that. Poor old Darwin knew nothing about this when you suggested that we arose by chance. If you told him this, the old man's eyes would have uh, blown out, because he started off as a Christian. But then they argued with him and told him that you could make but he didn't know anything about this either. But you could make all the chemistry by chance. And in the end, that knocked his faith out, and he became a pantheist. But he couldn't have been a pantheist if he had known all this beforehand. And we know it today, and we want people who are going around to teach these sorts of things. Okay, that'll be enough for today. Thank you very much for your, your patience. <laughs>